You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Looking up at the image on the billboard, at the smoldering ruins on which she was standing, Tanya thought about the victims of that day and other days since he had taken power, people who lost their lives, people who lost their livelihoods, people who just lost their country, or, as Tanya felt, learned what their country really was when you peeled off the mask of civility, what it always had been if you read the history books that the school boards wouldn't put on the curriculum. This city reminded her of the bad parts of her own past, the days when the fresh darkness announced its arrival, and a lot of people put out the welcome mat, mistaking it for salvation. Hard times produced harder solutions. Christopher Brown was nominated for a World Fantasy Award for his anthology Three Messages and a Warning, contemporary Mexican short stories from the fantastic. His first novel is Tropic of Kansas. Uh, Thank you for joining me, Christopher. Thanks for having me, Rick. This is an amazing book. It was written three to four years ago, yet you were apparently busily rearranging (laughs) the past to create our present. And I think that for me, one of the, the most interesting aspects of this book is the central, a central notion here is the idea of the network. As since we live essentially on the internet, we tend to think of networks as being this kind of mass of wires, and you know we connect through that way. But network is a very uh, interesting term, and you explore it in a variety of fashions in this book. It's a really that's a really astute observation. I mean, I sort of start from a kind of a cyberpunk, you know, early cyberpunk sense of network, right, which we all are so familiar with. Mm-hmm of, uh, you know, the utopian potential of networks to kind of find our way to new systems of governance or to uh, better communicate with each other. But uh, as I set out to look at this book, partly thinking about, you know, early ideas of how new technologies could deliver us new politics in a kind of a more authentically participatory way of organizing our community lives... Um, I was also looking at, uh, you know, other kinds of uh, like ecological networks and human networks and uh, seeing these different sorts of structures that are there in the kind of the liminal liminal space of the world around us and trying to bring out the ones we don't look at instead of the ones that we so often examine in science fiction and try to find the connections in them in the way that, um, uh, I mean... As I was wrapping up the book, I read this amazing book uh, called The Prehistory of the Cloud, looking at how all of our technological networks are also rooted in our natural networks, that, you know, most of the pipe of the Internet travels through right away from old railroads, which in turn follows, you know, geological pathways, or the fact that I learned that... uh, this uh, road that runs right by my house was one of the original pathways of the Chisholm Trail, uh, which also wow. means it was once a, you know, it was a pioneer trail before that, which means it was an Indian trail, which means it was, 
an animal pathway, you know, of migratory megafauna going back however far in time you might want to imagine. There's a, I learned that the the highway between Detroit and Chicago, U.S. Highway 50, is a traces the path of a mastodon trackway. And so, um, so thinking about all of those sorts of networks that are there in the landscape, and the way in which that the kind of the deep traces of the past um, are manifest in this ethereal realm that we've conjured up and sort of trying to dig back through the ether to find a little bit more of the grit. It's very easy to confuse the technology that we associate with the network, but the real important part of the network are the human nodes, no matter what sort of technology that they're using to communicate. It's actually the, the connections between the humans that matter. It doesn't matter how we're connecting. Absolutely. And if you're trying to look at, you know, paths to construct better futures, really looking at, you know, the human structures that are embodied in those networks and yeah, and the the actual people on those nodes, that's the that's the stuff you have to dig into. Something that was often in my mind as I read this book was some, I can't remember where I read it, but somebody had had written that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than a change in political systems. <laughs> and it strikes me that so many dystopias essentially just do away with everything, and then you are just have a few uh, leftovers wandering around in the refuse uh, shooting at each other. This book immerses us in a, a political system that ha- it's like ours that's been through <laughs> through a crazy quilt maker. And it struck me that part of the page-turning plot of this book is to figure out just what sort of world we were in. When you started crafting this world, did you know exactly what you were going to be about? Uh, I knew where I wanted to go. And uh, I had a uh, both a sort of, I mean, I wrote the ending first, the kind of the core of the ending. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a kind of clear idea of the characters, you know, the kind of core characters I wanted. And I had a kind of aspirational endpoint of exactly what you, what you, what you uh, cite with that sort of uh, variously attributed and off-quoted aphorism that it's easier to imagine the end of the, wor- end of the world than a small change in the political system, or some people say, than, a, you know, than the end of capitalism or something, <laughs> or what comes after. And, uh, and I mean, the, if science fiction is the literature of ideas, the ideas that I'm most interested in are engaging more with sort of political ideas and political theoretical ideas than with, you know, technological uh, fetishistic ideas. And so I'm trying to imagine, you know, the small change in the political system that may not be utopia, but is at least a an aspirational dipole to the world we live in. It's a project that seems to have been largely abandoned by politics. And so maybe <laughs> science fiction can have a role in that. And uh, so, yeah, so it's trying to get there. And then so I imagined this endpoint, uh, which included a, a United States torn apart by popular uprising in a way that, you know, we see these things going on on the other side of the world. And it's a great inversion to kind of turn that on its head, right? Uh, a kind of a post 9-11 story set in a world where 9-11 didn't even happen. And all of that dark energy is kind of domestically focused, right? And uh, but uh, I didn't know how I was going to get there. I don't know that I found my way to the solution. I feel like I got to you kind of start to see some of its, you know, 
shimmering uh, off in the horizon line, but uh, but that was the objective. Uh, I love the kind of immersive feel of this in the way you put us into this world where it, it feels like the present, but it also feels like the future simultaneously. And I think that that's a very interesting notion because so much science fiction is concerned with the future and the the pat and the present being very cleanly demarcated. Here's the present. We have cars and we have cement buildings. Here's the future. We have jetpacks and we have plastic buildings and everything's bitching. And, and but the future just accretes uh, is added to the present one day at a time. And I think this is a book of a future that comes exactly one day at a time. Yeah, I mean, it's really in my mind as I was writing it. I mean, it's. I suppose there's ambiguity about you know mm-hmm. the the temporal aspect of it, but it's basically thinking of it as a mirror present more mm-hmm. than anything, in which all of the things that are in this book are things that I know exist in the real world in some form, all of the technologies and uh, and all of the places, and so it's about yeah about seeing both the you know unevenly distributed futures right to you know uh, uh, to to, to Use the overquoted Gibsonian aphorism, I suppose, and also to pull in like the deep past, as I was saying earlier, and to and to look at a, a kind of atemporal now, and uh, it's something that I think, uh, you know, the curated, the, the personally curated realities we each create now <laughs> as a byproduct of the network culture that the cyberpunks kind of helped endow us with. Um, the idea of the present and of the future and the past are kind of jumbled up now. And I think that pulling in um, uh, the past into the future, into the now of the book, um, uh, in a kind of remixed way uh, is a fun thing that uh, can really capture what it feels like to be alive right now. And at the same time to yeah, pull in these deeper threads where uh, you get kind of a sense of wonder from those... Um, uh, yeah, network tendrils of the deep past and of the far future that are sort of pulling on the right now. This book takes place in a world that looks like ours, but there's been some some you made some changes, and I wonder if you care to talk about as you wrote this book. Did you know exactly what the genre of the book is? What the subgenre of this was? Yeah, I mean, I set out originally, Rick, to write, uh, uh, basically to take the tropes of adventure fiction mm-hmm. uh, and adventure pulps and repurpose them towards more emancipatory ends, you might say. <laughs> so this is Tarzan of the networks. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it is kind of, uh, it's sort of, uh, you know, Conan the terrorist. <laughs> <laughs> right, there's a little of that. I yeah, mean, I exactly. Mean, totally, and I think those archetypes. I know I had read a lot of great ni- post nine eleven literature, both mainstream and speculative fiction, and uh, and it had struck me that um, so much of those uh, stories that were really engaging with the issues of the day, but mostly through talking mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, and a kind of a 
consistent inability to sort of take action to deal with the, the injustices that were being discovered in the world of those books. So I was like, oh, well, well let's see if we can take some of these, you know, archetypes of, uh, of an almost naive idea of action and, and, uh, uh, and then mix it with this kind of heady literature of ideas and see what results. So, uh, and originally it was basically set in, a, in contemporary reality, but I realized to get to the end point, this ending I had in mind at the beginning, that I needed to start in a more messed up place. And so I imagined things that sort of seemed implausible to me at the time, like the idea of a you know, sort of charismatic businessman who has become a fascist president. Um, not so much anticipating any prescient future, but sort of, I don't know, working in corporate life in my day job and looking at, you know, um, just kind of our own, you know, uh, leadership structures um, or looking at just the the landscape of the part of the country that I live in that sort of traverses between the upper Midwest and Texas and Louisiana and sort of seeing things in the landscape that... Uh, are not often examined that when you do examine them, you know, you kind of it can lead to kind of, uh, I don't know, deeper revelations about the relationship with the land and how much that has to do with, you know, our, uh, our more purely human social uh, uh, and economic problems. Or going to give talks in Mexico with my Mexican writer friends uh, in the shadow, literally in the shadows of the border wall, and sort of seeing, um, you know, the dystopian qualities of the right now that's there, but sometimes you have to be on the other side of uh, of the mirror to see it. You know, one of the things I really loved about this novel was this, what you were talking about, it really has an American adventure feel, almost like a wilderness novel, like a Tom, Tom Sawyer or The Call of the Wild. It has that kind of really action feel to it. And... To, to get that going, you have a fantastic character, right? And he is so wonderful because when we first meet him, he doesn't seem like much. And you do, this is this novel is an absolutely masterful um, example of a hero's novel. So talk about Sig, who is, just, he just kicks everything. Yeah, well, so, yeah, Sig is, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fun character to follow around for me, and it was a fun run to write. And you're you're very astute in seeing the kind of Americana of uh, uh, of a lot of the archetypes and precedents uh, uh, that uh, whose whose heritage he is uh, trying to carry on. You know, this is a this is a science fiction that goes outside. Right? <laughs> it does go outside. I like that. They spend most of their time outside. Uh, you know, it, well, it, it, it's like a, just a classic Mark Twain. I mean, there's there's a bit of that in there. Yeah, and so um, uh, I I sort of imagined these characters, and then I realized I came across, I happened to pick up sort of serendipitously this great uh, 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 uh book on American folklore called American Humor by Constance Rourke from the 30s that have been republished by New York Review. And it's like a deep study of some of these archetypes from American folklore, like the backwoodsman of the frontier, who is embodied not only in all the, there's all, there are male and female embodiments of it. There's, you know, there's a, you know, 
Davy Crockett, but there's also Davy Crockett's wife, Sally Ann Thunder Ann Whirlwind, who, <laughs> wow. who, you know, Wonder Woman may have a lasso, but Sally Ann Thunder Ann Whirlwind had a, had a lasso she made from six snakes she tied together and pulled helpless Davy Crockett from a tree. So, uh, or the Yankee Peddler, who's kind of the proto-capitalist trickster, who, mm-hmm. you know, the Harold Hill from The Music Man, who's sort of, you know, the guy who rolls into town and sells people things they already own. Um, and so on. And so um, uh, so I think harnessing the power of I wanted, you know, there's a kind of a writer's workshop truism that, you know, you can find great uh, uh, material for story in classical mythology or, you know, in the, you know, Campbellian monomyth or whatever. And I was like, well, I want to work with I want to this is like a story trying to deal with American problems. And so let me play with American mythologies, as it were, which are fresh mythologies that are based usually on historical figures that have then been sort of embellished through a uniquely American kind of fabulism. And so Sig embodies that outdoors figure, the kind of the backwoodsman of the frontier who um, sort of represents in some ways or occupies and literally lives in the space between human settlement and wilderness. And uh, and it happens. That's where I live, literally, physically. I mean, I live between on a lot between a, a a big door factory and a dairy plant on the one side, and then the floodplain of the river with this sort of hidden little woodland. And so I think that's really interesting territory to explore, especially if you want to explore um, both tell a fun, you know, sort of a fun adventure story while trying to dial up the realism of it and explore, you know. That relationship we have with, you know, between the things we need to do to get by and live and the things we do to the land uh, on which we live. Uh, There's the landscape in this novel is wonderfully chaotic. It's really it, it seems like there's something kind of both expected and unexpected around every corner. And yet you've do, done a wonderful job of carefully, you know, crafting and upping the ante of uh, of what goes on. So talk about uh, creating a world that, like ours, is somewhat chaotic, but yet you have a very clear kind of character arc, trajectory. You know where you're going in this world. Um, did you as you wrote it? I don't know that I did as I wrote <laughs> it. I mean, you, you know, I mean, I'm a person, every morning I go out into the woods and get lost in a new way. And uh, walking my dogs down in these woods behind the factories, and uh, and when you you know a kind of uh, kind of eco psychogeography, if you will, the same way some of us try to find new routes through the cities we live in, and I think that's uh, that's a fun way to find the uncanny. It always happens. It's a fun way to find um, surprises, uh, just kind of hiding in plain sight in the material of everyday life. And and in this story, I think, um, I mean, yeah, I would have an idea of what I wanted to do in a given segment, right? Uh, but it's a little bit of, uh, you know, going off the trail, as it were, <laughs> and kind of finding a fresh path. And sometimes you find your way to a place where you're stuck and you really have to work harder. And sometimes it's sort of, you know, there it is. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, creating Tanya, who's Sig's older sister, sort of, and, and that kind of relationship. I think that's an interesting relationship to put at the core of a novel. It's not an, a normal one. Now, I mean, it. Um... You avoid the boy meets girl uh, syndrome, which I 
was quite happy to. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want. I mean, this book is it. It didn't need, you know, um, it didn't need to get into romance. I mean, there wasn't <laughs> a lot of room in here for it. Um, these are not people who have a lot of time to have fun. Uh, and uh, yeah, and I, I kind of discovered that relationship in the course of the writing. Um, I mean, honestly, I don't know that they originally started out as having that relationship. I sort of figured out, oh, that's the, that's the, it was the nature of the relationship that emerged, and uh, and it really fit. And and that um, and by creating a sibling relationship that was and wasn't an authentic sibling relationship and uh, exploring uh, it in the context of that of that particular world, it provided a way to really um, try to examine how community is really constructed from family and from relationships that may not start out as authentic family, but you know we treat them like family. We treat them with, you know, build them from authentic empathy and so the the interpersonal part of that and the interpersonal tensions that come from the complexity of that relationship I found even with all of this sort of you know somewhat grand world building going around or these big you know expansive wild landscapes uh, or you know uh, horrifically wondrous dystopias it's that intimate connection uh, of family that is really the kind of, I don't the empathic core of what I'm trying to do there. And I think, and, you know, you can kind of cascade it up uh, to higher levels of looking at, you know, the entire community of people that uh, uh, populate the book. It struck me that uh, you were talking about how much this book takes place outdoors and you were describing where you live. In. And I think that's an interesting uh, mirror because... I mean, I was just thinking how how many writers who especially science fiction writers who live in cities not surprisingly write about cities. So if you're a science fiction writer who lives kind of out in the middle of nowhere and is, which sounds not put any aspersions on where you live, it sounds from like really nice place. But that kind of openness that really informs your science fiction, that's an interesting take. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I it's in a city. I mean, I'm 10 minutes from downtown Austin. It's just one of these little, little pockets of nature in San Francisco, you know, that I came across yesterday roaming around here. Um, it's And so in that act of like seeking out the wilderness, little tiny remnants of the wild that are hidden even in the heart of the city um, uh, is something that intrinsically interests me. And I want to have... Uh, write a kind of a, you know, a, a science fiction that's infused with realism. I want to write a naturalistic dystopia. I want to, or a dystopian realism uh, in the context of this book. And so, you know. Mission it, accomplished. Yeah, so you pull in the things you see in the world around you and, uh, yeah, and you go the places or send the characters to places that you know, uh, but maybe transmitted through this speculative prism. We were talking earlier about the networks, and one of the things I like um, about this book is the the way that you handle um, technology. In that, we uh, in in the in the current world, we we currently uh, live in a world where many people use technology that they have no comprehension of how it works. Myself involved, <laughs> so mm -hmm. I, I'm not, not so, um, but. 
What that means is that you lose the ability to see older technology as technology and to even understand that it's capable of, of doing stuff. So talk about you. So you have in the midst of uh, the, a digital network, you have people who are analyzing and using the interstices of an analog network that most people don't even remember. I think that's really a fascinating look. Yeah, it. I mean, I I'm I've always been fascinated by old school analog broadcast technologies, and uh, you know that sort of. Uh, Static and noise, and uh, and these things—they're all around. And I mean, it—you know—again, the sort of the like I'm looking around at my immediate environment. I wrote this sitting in a trailer, an old Airstream trailer that had an eight-track tape player in it, and you know, and a and an AM/FM radio, and that was sort of my access to the network, you know, for <laughs> kind of background noise. So, but but I think, um, yeah, thinking about retro a kind of a retro futurism mm -hmm. of uh, especially in a society or in circumstances of the characters that we're following where they have to figure out a way to do the things they need to do with sort of the materials available at hand in the context of looking at a of a kind of a surveillance society that's really based on the kinds of digital technologies or surveillance we have now how do you evade that and Playing with the idea, but what about uh, uh, you know playing with these analog technologies in a way that I don't know? I think is kind of uh, inherently fun, and there's there's a reality to it. I mean, I the, it's based on stuff I've worked on in the past. The idea of you know transmitting you know embedded signals through the vertical blanking interval of old TVs, where you know you would see that you know thing sort of flickering across the screen when it wasn't running right, and um, and the idea of I love the romance of you know people creating their own underground means of kind of doing what it is they want to do. Uh, there, there's a lot of homebrew in this in this uh, book, and it's interesting the way I think you do a good job of showing like more developed areas of civilization, um, it, closely adjacent to completely undeveloped areas of situation. And what's nice is that, you know, you've turned everything upside down so that in America, it's the undeveloped. We have become the third world. And in fact, there's a line in there where you say, uh, the Tropic of Kansas is, are those parts of the Midwest that are um, trending more like the third world? That had turned third world. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's like, uh, as a, I think that she says that the, the, the joke was that... Uh, uh, they they tried to return the Louisiana purchase to the French, but it was too damaged. <laughs> and and again, I mean, that's sort of, uh, I mean, on the one hand, it's a science fictional inversion or a kind of counterfactual inversion, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I mean, and I think there are other people doing similar things, looking at you know, putting the kind of post nine eleven global problems, all containing them within the four corners of the U.S. Um, but uh, uh, for me, it was um, uh, also just describing the world I saw. I mean, if you go outside of, uh, you know, the affluence of our cities, um, you see a lot of uh, places that are starting to look like uh, a little exhausted, like their, <laughs> their productive potential uh, that was, you know, conceived and, uh, and first, you know, hatched in the, 
mid-19th century, say, with the original sort of putting of the continent under the plow. Some of those places, if you travel through them, especially if you get off the interstates and go on the back roads into these little county seats or the sub, you know, or the even smaller towns and uh, farmlands and ranch lands of the central U.S., uh, sometimes you see, um, yeah, things that do look like they're, you know, they're not that far from, you know, some stereotypical projected idea of the third world. You write that also, too, I love this line, that the original Tropic of Kansas was the line in our heads where ingenuity runs into loco. <laughs> <laughs> where I, I think that uh, we have reached that point in reality. And one of the things that obviously anybody who reads this, and especially now, um, uh, one of the central figures in here is, as you say, uh, a businessman turned president who's uh, more of an autocrat at this point than anything else. Uh, that kind of uh, reading that kind of and that reality, it's really uh, distorting to to uh, readers. You're just going, oh, my God, wait a second. How could he know this? How how could he be writing this? Obviously, we know this is written. Talk about that creating that sense of, of uh, dissociation. Uh, when you were writing this, um, what were you uh, thinking about? I was thinking about really two things. One was a, a longstanding, I mean, I saw a kind of a persistent notion among uh people of certain political persuasions, that the idea that the best qualification to run the country would be to have run a company. And, uh, you know, I mean, Mitt Romney was, you know, I mean, he was the businessman, uh, you know, politician. And you find traces of that going back certainly to Reagan and even further. And um, uh, in, uh, you know, a variety of candidates who had run on those kinds of lines. So on the one hand, it was, I saw that idea. I was like, well, what if that really happened? What if uh, uh, the things that I've seen in my life in terms of how leadership structures really work in the context of a corporation, which is sort of the really the dominant social reality of many of, of of most of our everyday lives, right? Is not so much the the kind of the political structure in Washington, but the structure of the places we spend our productive lives, and they're like, you know, warlord model, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Warlord band pyramids of, you know, sort of pirate leaders. And uh, so I was sort of trying to, you know, explore that. And so if there's prescience, it's not prescience. It's just sort of seeing things that were out there that were already trying to happen. And then, oh, hey, it it happened in a different way than I ever anticipated. You have a lot of fun uh, with drones. And I think particularly uh, one of the things that you do, I think, is really well, really well and pretty terrifying is uh, revise our concept of the self-driving car to a passenger drone. <laughs> Start thinking about it that way. Maybe the idea of self-driving cars becomes rather different and, and extremely terrifying. Yeah, I mean, the... I mean, I was interested in taking the things that we do with drones on the other side of the planet mm -hmm. and doing them right here. And, uh, you know, and, and seeing how when you do, when you put those things here, you know, there's people at a wedding and, you know, suddenly something goes up, blows up because there's some 
uh, uh, weapon in the sky that's been following uh, uh, people to the wedding um, and sort of playing with that stuff. And the idea then of, you know, the the autonomy we enable our um, uh, technologies of surveillance to have. Uh, uh, and, you know, and right now, I mean, there's a lot of... Uh, that technology certainly exists of autonomous drones, and obviously for... Uh, a variety of reasons we don't allow it, but um, it's not that hard to imagine a world in which that happens, and I think it's uh, it's an interesting thing to look at and to try to think about. The the characters in this book, um, one character I really liked was uh, Maxine Price. I think you do a great job with uh, creating her as a figure. So talk about uh, creating, um, I guess, figures of of some hope in, in a in a rather bleak uh, reality. Yeah, well that's interesting you ask about that. Yeah, I mean I really love that character and that character um in many ways she embodies a kind of a science fictional homage to a lot of these great uh uh like women writers of science fiction really from the new wave and uh uh, Octavia Butler, yeah, and Joanna Russ, and mm-hmm. um, and a lot of you know people working today who've been around for a while and do really remarkable things, and and the way in which remarking uh, and you know getting a more mature and deeper understanding maybe of um, how profound the power can be of uh, that combination of imagination and empathy and big ideas uh, to really imagine more plausible, better futures. Uh, One that's not based on masculine warlord power pyramids and uh, and, uh, trying to imagine one's way into a world in which those kinds of you know, socio-political structures might be able to be more ascendant. You were talking about this as a work of adventure writing, and I think it really excels at that. This is very exciting to read, and you have a lot of fantastic set pieces. When you create a set piece set in an imaginary world, um, you have some challenges because you can't just, uh, you know, it's not, uh, you can't just block it out of reality, and you're also, you can't just block your character's responses out of reality. It's not like can see exactly cops and robbers. So talk about, uh, you know, the challenges of blocking a scene set in an imaginary world so that it seems like something like it's reading this was like reading intense police drama or something. Yeah, I mean, I mean, at one level, it still is. I mean, I think so much of that material in there is drawn from uh, from life. I mean, Injuries that characters experience that either I have personally experienced or, you know, I talked to a a buddy of mine who uh, uh, has been shot by rubber bullets and told me just what it feels like. Um, But uh, uh, it's also about kind of framing the big ideas through that adventure prism. So we talked about SIG and we talked about drones and I was thinking about even like these kind of silly archetypes like, you know, Magnus Robot Fighter of these like, (laughs) you know, that old cheesy comic or the idea of uh, letting these set pieces embody our 
fraught, frustrated, uh, putatively adversarial relationships with these <laughs> technologies that are presented to us as the means of our liberation to live a happier, you know, uh, more hedonically pleased lifestyle, but really are traps of our enslavement, you know, <laughs> to kind of uh, algorithmically, you know, uh, marionette puppet our way through life. And so a lot of those set pieces um, are sort of, I guess they're kind of uh, finding their way into those issues, but through physicality and action and through sort of kinetic movement through the world. And and lastly, trying to take the material of all of this like contemporary adventure and techno-thriller drama that's just everywhere you know, the sort of, you know, these, uh, you know, all of these, uh, you know, like the 24 TV series or like when I was working on the book, there were three movies came out uh, about people blowing up the White House and of <laughs> taking all of that kind of stuff where it's the heroic agent of the state, you know, kind of with the flag in the background and turning that completely on its head and sort of saying, well, what if the state were bad? And what if the, you know, the bad guys of the book that they're chasing are, in fact, the, the figures of... Uh, you know, justice and, and resistance. I, I suppose, you know, thinking about it, the book this is closest to in terms of texture and feel of any book I've read, thinking about it now, I would say it's Black Hawk Down. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's trying, it's totally trying to take that kind of material. It's, it's exactly that and, material. You've got, you know, the good guys trapped in the third world place and only in your place, the good guys. These are Americans, and the third world place they're trapped in is America. Yeah, and so that's the Ballardian inversion, you know, is, yeah, taking, it's, I think that's, you sort of nailed it there. I mean, um, uh, you know, or you could, sub, there's a million, you know, a million precedents like that, uh, and uh, uh, trying to take that material and, yeah, turn it inside out, upside down, on its head, whatever, and, uh, uh, I mean, I've read plenty of books since I finished this where, uh, people imagine, you know, the, the 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 suicide bombers are products of some dystopian or mirror American culture. Um, I wanted to do it, you know, uh, uh, with figures of that kind of liberation or resistance that are more rooted in uh, in our own stories. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, we're we're a, we're a we're a nation of people who are raised on a revolutionary creation myth. Um, and, uh, uh, but in our, in our popular fictions, uh, we prefer the revolution to keep its powdered wigs on. Right. <laughs> and so this is sort of, you know, trying to, trying to, uh, yeah, explore in the safe laboratory of a novel, um, you know, some of those themes to just try to sort of, push at the at the at the boundaries of how we might you know how we might actually get to those better futures and have fun uh, along the way in in terms of the story it strikes me that as americans uh, in the product of a revolutionary creation myth we might do well to think more about the creation aspect than the revolution aspect when people think about america they don't think about a bunch of guys sitting down and writing stuff and negotiating and yakking at each other they think about getting out there with guns and shooting down <laughs> yeah well i think it's a great point and that's why i love that you talked about that character of maxine price who embodies 
you know, somebody who embodies like let's 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 stop and think about uh, what we're doing here. Um, and uh, and I don't know. I mean, my aspiration would be to kind of find the way to um, the creation part of the creation myth. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, as you I said, do that at the very end, which is I think what's really nice. Amazing prose at the end. There are so many big passages where you could just sit down and read it. I mean, almost. I'm wondering how much you did you spend time like reading like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution to get to some of the language and the thought processes behind the way that people speak in the book. Um, I mean, not not directly, but I mean, I kind of come from. I mean, I'm a I'm also a lawyer. Oh, okay. and I've worked in politics, and uh, and I've written a lot, you know, and sort of. Uh, Nonfiction and essays about some of the same issues, and you know, kind of immersed in political theory, and so uh, so thinking about things like you know, how the social contract is real, you know, that is the that we're supposed to all be living under under a sort of supposedly consensual basis, how it's really constructed, and um, and thinking about yeah, all of these you know experiments that we have in, you know, utopian uh, uh, efforts at sovereignty and autonomy of communities in which the whole country is supposed to be in some to some extent in which our history is full of smaller experiments where people do that and uh, and you know trying to in the context of the story wonder what where you know what kind of uh, of a you know, different and more autonomous communities people would want to build if they had the opportunity or were able to secure it for themselves. One of the things you do well in here is you play well with the notion of the FCC. <laughs> and again, there's a there's an incredible sense of timing in this book in many ways. It just seems, as I say, it seems very prescient. But just as we see our own FCC start to change its stance um, you give us the ultimate output of that. So talk about uh, the the subtle influence of the FCC and the way that plays out. I think in a pretty it's a pretty big important of the under uh, garments of your book, so yeah, to speak. Yeah, I mean, I've kind of grown up with the web mm-hmm. and with the internet, and been uh, uh, sort of you know, in all of my av- pursuits. And um, and I'm very interested in you know sort of how these monolithic media structures just always get created from no matter how liberated the technological foundation seems to be, and uh, and so I wanted to play with that. And I mean I remember I think I don't know how long ago it was that the FCC mandated this conversion where all analog technologies were sort of shut down or had to have these converter boxes. And I was like you know there's interesting things where. The government really does dictate the basic, at least to the extent that we're, you know, using the airwaves as a as a kind of a commons. They regulate, you know, how we're able to how we're able to sit here and talk over, you know, over radio waves or whatever. And um, uh, so, sort of playing with that and playing with the potentials of um, both how sinister that could be. Uh, or how sinister in some respects it is if you sort of look at it from the right <laughs> angle, right? Yeah, yeah. If you're like the alien who's just arrived, right, uh, from, you know, planet freedom, and you sort of see this way that um, uh, 
sameness and you know kind of constant uh, 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 kind of uh, not brainwashing but a kind of uh, messaging that creates a certain culture of compliance um, and you know imagining a world in which the internet doesn't even exist but the the you know the technologies that were the you know the got second place of interactive television back when we all thought in the 90s there was a period where everybody thought that the uh, the big phone companies and the cable companies are going to get together and turn our TVs into the real interactive thing. And so this world also sort of imagines what if that had happened? You know, what if AT&T had never broken up and we just had and um, it's sort of an easy cheat to get to a place to look at those issues. You have a lot of fun playing with uh, the rewriting the business world in a sense, uh, I, I guess, because on one hand you are talking about uh, choosing uh, government leaders who come from the business world and, and the upshot of that. And you have more of the business world playing out underneath in the background of this. But what interests me is that when you let big business run rampant, it doesn't end up as a monolith. It ends up <laughs> as just a, a, a bunch of people uh, running around shooting each other. And, and, you know, trying to gouge each other. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, primate competition, right? It's, you know, and and uh, and these these people exist in a world of uh, increasingly scarce resources. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, and so, yeah, so, uh, you know, I was like, what? well, what happens if, you know, if Black Mo- Blackwater merges, you know, with the Carlisle group or whatever? <laughs> I mean, you know, those things, they kind of, they're like, they sort of want to happen in the real world, and it's fun to examine what that would be like. And uh, uh, you know, this these boundaries between uh, you know our our geopolitical activities and um, our kind of day to day business activities, and sort of you know busting through those and imagining what could happen. This book has a wonderful sense of language and prose, and you kind of repurpose things gently throughout it. So talk about creating the prose feel for this book. I guess it's it'd be, in, in movie terms, it'd be like your production design or something. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. And uh, choosing uh, the character of Sig was a really big part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you're going to have fidelity to the point of view of a character who has, uh, who's basically a 18 or 19 year old teenager who's been living outside just kind of uh, as a, you know, homeless kid, uh, for years. He's feral. He's a kind of a, almost a feral kid. Yeah. And so that's a pretty limited point of view. I mean, that's a, a character who almost doesn't have the sense of self that is the kind of the core characteristic of almost every point of view character in the in a modern novel. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have a sense of alienation, really. He's this sort of moment to moment living, and so that brings a uh, a kind of uh, a absence of interiority. Right? It's immediate. That's one, that, and that makes perfect sense because this. F- book feels very immediate it's like it's right on you yeah it's like i need to eat <laughs> yeah and i'm outside and i have you know nothing right and right and so um so starting from that genesis point right um and uh uh and then you know putting the gaze on the landscape and um 
and then bringing in the character of Tanya and why it became so important and why that relationship that you asked about earlier became so important is that then that gives you a more educated uh, uh, and uh, even cosmopolitan gaze on that world. And uh, and then they're kind of in conversation with each other about looking at that world through which they're passing from a different point of view. And one is of the outside and one is of the city. And uh, I think it's just... Uh, and then so looking at that and kind of looking at the, you know, the landscape of the world and uh, and trying to find even in this kind of grim dystopian uh, 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 representation the romance of landscape and the beauty of the, you know, the world we live in, even when it's been sort of uh, marred by uh, some of the things we do through our presence. One of the things about this book, I think that this captures book captures extremely well, is this notion of the long emergency. <laughs> this is something I, I keep waiting for this to begin, and it terrifies me that eventually it will begin, and then that will be it. So explain the idea of the long emergency. Yeah, I mean, it's... um. We're living in it in some respects. I mean, it's right, the way yeah. in which, um, I mean, there are a lot of different people who've written about these topics, kind of big thinkers. Um, uh, I'm kind of looking at it from the sort of uh, immediate uh, uh, applied perspective of, you know, the ways in which uh, civil liberties can lawfully be suspended. Um, you know, the idea of, uh, and the ways in which geopolitical spectacle can suddenly you know cause the suspension of normal uh uh, uh normal uh, civic life um there's a woman that uh, was one of my law professors named Mary Dugiak she wrote this book called War Time and she looks at the way in which when there's situations of conflict the whole legal system becomes sort of um uh disconnected from its democratic roots in a way so Looking at that and looking at that, how we feel in that time and and even just looking at like to get away from the kind of uh, 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 abstract ideas, thinking about, you know, like in those years after 9-11, especially the first, you know, the kind of the peak years of the guat, the global war on terror, the way in which there were things in the name of emergency situation that we knew were going on in realms we weren't allowed to see on our behalf and in our name, right? Mm -hmm. Torture and, you know, the deaths of innocence and all of those horrifying things that are the byproduct of, uh, you know, things people do maybe because they thought they needed to do them for good reasons. But in the times of, you know, emergency and and the kind of freak out that follows uh, uh, the emergency igniting event, and uh, things that you would see, they'd show up sort of through the back door, like, you know, with these, like, kind of torture porn movies or, you know, Saw 7 or whatever. <laughs> While you're, I'm like, maybe that's how we're, like, kind of unknowingly processing all of these horrible things that are actually going on and that don't show up on the news. And so trying to sort of figure out a different way to, to look at those things by putting it all at home. Now, uh, this book, creates quite a vivid world. Are you tempted to return to it? Have you? 
Will you? I've been thinking about it. I mean, um, because it is, I mean, on the one hand, it was pretty intense. It was mm. a sort of, there were aspects sure. of it that, you know, immersing yourself on that is pretty intense. Um, there's a character in there that I had to, that um, had one brief scene that didn't entirely end up in the book, who's kind of a criminal defense lawyer in this world. Um, sort of, you know, like, you know, if, if Better Call Saul were in, you know, Orwell's 1984, <laughs> he's kind of like a sleazy, rundown billboard lawyer. And um, I've been playing around with doing something with that, which I think is a lot of fun. Boy, I can't wait. All right. That sounds like a blast. I approve. All right. So, yeah, I think that's a fun, I think that's a fun one. So I, I may, I may go there through that, through that, through that vehicle. I wanted to talk to you uh, about uh, your anthology, Three Messages and a Warning. This is a brilliant uh, anthology, really wonderfully done. And so what led you to create an anthology of fantastic literature from Mexico? It's a, it was, it's a, it's a, thank you for asking about that. Um, I love that book. Um, uh, because of the things, the, 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 the way it came about and the way it represents, um, a connection to writers who are my neighbors who I only got to know through sort of happenstance. I got invited in 2009 uh, to participate in the uh, uh, Festival de Mexico, which was a it's a festival that uh, uh, is, has, has been going on for years to showcase the old downtown of Mexico City as a center for avant-garde arts and letters. And so they'll have, you know, free jazz and experimental theater. And that year, the literary track was Mundos Paralelos, hmm. Parallel Worlds. Uh, and uh, the literary curator, who's a, a writer named Mauricio Montiel Figueras, uh, he, uh, he was a sort of protege of Roberto Bolaño. And he was telling me how Bolaño loved to read English and American science fiction. Uh, and thought that all these, you know, that Latin American writers should be reading uh, uh, those things. And so they brought in all these American writers to come down there and, and uh, uh, participate in a, in a public event. There was, you know, I was kind of a sidekick at a superhero convention with them, John Harrison and Christopher Priest and Bruce Sterling and so on. But anyway, I met all these Mexican writers and I was really fascinated by their work. And I thought it was much more interesting than the sort of malinchismo of all of these American and English writers coming down and talking about science fiction, that there was uh, a both totally Mexican and totally global uh, kind of indigenous uh, uh, literature of the fantastic coming out of the right now, and not one that's the kind of... Uh, the kind of Mexican or Latin American fantastic we imagine when we sort of project this kind of folkloric prism onto it, which I think we're prone to do, but one that's of the future, that's of a networked uh, and, and uh, you know, globalized future. And uh, so writers like Mauricio Montiel or Bernardo Fernandez, uh, uh, Gabriela Damian or Pepe Rojo from Tijuana, I was really excited about that. And uh, and I pitched the idea of doing a special issue of Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet to uh, Gavin Grant at Kelly Link at Small Beer Press. And they were like, uh, they were skeptical. But then they got approached by my co-editor about an almost identical idea. And he was coming at it from more of a, a literary background, Eduardo Jimenez. And so uh, somehow that book happened. And it's a kind of book that is not supposed to happen. I mean, one, it's really hard to do literature and translation. Uh, uh, two, the Mexican writers all said that that book could never have existed 
in Mexico because it put genre writers and mainstream writers together in the same table of contents. Um, and so when it got the World Fantasy Award nomination, it was a big deal. These you would have thought that uh, uh, from some of the writers who were included in there, especially the science fiction writers, that you know they were up for an Academy Award or something. And so, um, and I think the book does a, a good job of uh, you know exposing us to some um, ah really fresh voices that are um, uh, uh, give us a glimpse into uh, a, a kind of a. Yeah, kind of a post-cyberpunk president in a lot of the stories that uh, really exists. Will you be returning to uh, talk to more of those people and get another anthology out of them? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, uh, I'd love to see more of their work translated. I mean, there's so much amazing work out there. Like uh, Beth, uh, which is the sort of nom de plume of Bernardo Fernandez, who's uh, both a writes uh, a kind of sometimes speculative crime novels, narco-thrillers, uh, but also as a, a, a graphic novelist. He has a, 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 an amazing graphic novel he did called Uncle Bill, which is about both about William Burroughs' time in Mexico wow. and about a Mexican kid's experience of getting turned on to Burroughs and, uh, and then kind of finding the way for the, the storylines to hook up. Just amazing stuff. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I really think there is... Great material there that uh, I'm sad that, uh, uh, and that's true of not just of Mexico, but of you know science fiction from all over the world, or you know the the kind of work that people who love science fiction create. Uh, and we need to figure out more ways to get more work translated and to expose ourselves to uh, you know other ways of looking at the world we live in and at our own country and other countries and and ideas of the future. The new book by Christopher Brown is Tropic of Kansas. Thank you for joining me, Christopher. Thanks for having me, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.